You're listening to episode 382 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hello, everyone. How are you? Happy fall, I guess. It's the, we've had the unofficial end of summer on Labor Day. So I think Max will probably start getting into a real rhythm back with the show, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And you know what, David? It might be worth mentioning our guest on the last episode of the Airplane Geeks podcast, because I think maybe some folks who listen to this show uh, who don't listen to that one might be interested. Our guest was uh, Dr. Luke Van Dyke. He's the CEO and co-founder of Dedalian, which is a uh, Zurich-based startup, and they're developing flight control software for, guess what, autonomous flight and so they're initially starting with um, using AI to uh, develop some pilot assist capabilities. But their end game is autonomous flight, urban air mobility, things like that. So uh, they're, they're really doing some interesting things. And um, in, in fact, it's, it's more than just vaporware. Avidyne uh, had uh, a month or so ago at... Uh, uh, Oshkosh actually uh, announced that they would be using Dedalian's AI software for their new Pilot Eye vision system. So, if you're interested in autonomous flight and urban air mobility, things like that, and are wondering, um, you know, how how would an aircraft detect other aircraft, other obstacles, things like that, you might want to listen to uh, to that episode. And you can find that easily. Just visit airplanegeeks.com slash 669. Well, good. And uh, that was a great interview. I'm looking forward to more of that kind of stuff coming up in the future. But Max, we I guess we have to do this show, our other show, huh? Yes, we do. So we've got an old friend of the Airplane Geeks, Terrafugia, developing an eVertol UAV, hazmat responders using drones, Old school drones, or what I like, or we call FSATs, or full cell areas targets, like QF-16s, endangered porpoises spotted from the air. Then U.S. Navy repels drones, um, that means push away, not repels from. AT&T cows save the day, and a new drone rules in India. It always seems like every like every other month or so, there are more new drone rules from India. They're more drone ruley than here we are in the United States. How about we, we talk about Terrafugia Incorporated and they launched a brand new commercial UAV. It's really a double launch kind of. They launched a new brand, which is called Comaris. And the first product of the brand is called the Seeker, which is an electric fixed-wing, as David mentioned, VTOL hybrid aircraft that's designed for autonomous commercial aerial applications. But kind of one of the interesting aspects of this is that Terrafugia have been developing the transition is what they call it, the transition rotable aircraft. They've been doing that since 2006. Uh, It's a flying car, but they refer to it as a rotable aircraft. Uh, And in fact, uh, the CEO of Terrafugia at the time, Carl Dietrich, was our guest on Airplane Geeks podcast. I, I checked, David, it was like 10 years ago. Wow. Amazing. 
But they debuted the Seeker at the Commercial UAV Expo in Los Angeles, which was from uh, September 7th through 9th, uh, which is uh, the 9th being this is when we're recording this, of course, 2021. So the Seeker has a three-hour flight time with a top speed of 60 miles per hour, and this is all done with electric motors. A 15-foot wingspan, multiple payload configurations up to 10 pounds, and a modular design that allows three minutes to assemble and disassemble in the field. So definitely there, you're being able to assemble or disassemble a, a vehicle in three minutes is very impressive. It sure is. And some of the applications they envision for this, uh, commercial inspection operations for power, gas, oil, mapping, agriculture, security, which makes sense for an eVTOL of, of this type. Um, and there are a number of different payload options, things like 30-time optical zoom, uh, different kinds of cameras, 120-megapixel high-resolution camera for terrain mapping and 3D modeling, things like a six-band multispectral camera that's designed for precision agriculture analysis, and some other things, LIDAR, a laser methane sensor, a corona discharge sensor. I'm not sure what you do with the corona discharge sensor. But most of these sensors will uh, be able to stream the data to the operator in near real time. Camaris does intend this to be for commercial UAV operations. And in 2021, Terrafugia received the first FAA airworthiness certificate for a rotable aircraft in 60 years. Ironically, the last one um, basically is now an EAA museum. TerraFuture was acquired in 2017 by the Geely Holding Group, a Chinese multinational automotive company. But wonder if, if this will be the end of the TerraFuture. It's hard to say. It, it feels like this is a pivot for the company that has been focused on uh, these kind of, you know, rotable aircraft. But they're still in the kind of air transportation space. They're just kind of enlarging it to go to, uh, you know, a different direction. But it does feel like, as I said, kind of a pivot for them. As we record this, they have some openings, some career openings. Uh, some of them are uh, engineering positions, and they have a marketing and communications opening. And these are all at their uh, Massachusetts facility. And we'll have links in the show notes, Terrafugia. Dot com is the sort of the home website, but uh, they did establish a website specifically for Comaris, which is C-O-M-M-A-R-I-S dot com. So you can find more information there. And I have the feeling that it won't take as long to uh, bring this eVTOL to market as it has for the rotable aircraft not that we speculate, but we're going to speculate. But it's it's an interesting pivot, Max. We're talking about eVertols, and we're talking about a company that was making a um, an early version of urban air mobility, which was a rotable aircraft. So I wonder if the two technologies will merge and TerraFuture will come out into the um, UA the urban air mobility space after developing the whole UAV project process. Yeah, it's not too hard to imagine given given the company's history. 
So the rise of a drone program. This was from Firehouse.com. Add this one to the collection of magazines where we would never expect to ha see an article. But according to the author uh, from this called Rise of the Drone Program, the drone is one of the most significant advances in resources for hazmat response. And that makes kind of sense. It does. And, and they give some examples, too. Obviously, drones allow you to monitor a hazmat uh, spill or situation uh, from a safe distance. But some of the examples uh, that are given in this article are, I think, rather interesting. They, they have a photograph of a rail car uh, that's carrying liquefied petroleum gas. And this photograph was taken from a drone, uh, they say, half a mile away, and yet you can still clearly read the signage on the tank. If there's a train wreck in this example, and you don't know right away just what's in what cars, and you can stand off at a distance with a, with a drone and uh, observe in great detail you know, what's documented on the, on the cars, you know, huge, huge advantage. You don't have to you know, get up close or wait to see some manifest or something like that. So uh, it, that's one of the examples, and I think it's a great example. Another one is an infrared photo of ammonia and propane tanks clearly showing the liquid level in both tanks. Again, though, Max, when I was reading this article, it sort of made me think, is, is really the drone the important technology or the fact that the sensors the drone's carrying in the article seem to be really where the author was getting to the point where the drone may be the ability to deliver the sensors, but the sensor technology is really what's going to happen, really is going to help the first responders. Yeah, I think that's a great point. These kinds of sensors, you know, high-resolution cameras, and infrared cameras, and all the rest of it clearly have been around for a long time. But what, an, uh, what a UAV brings is, is the ability to position that from a safe distance in a way that doesn't endanger uh, the, uh, the hazmat uh, responders. So, yeah, it's, it's great. They do mention that the equipment costs can be uh, very high, and uh, the author offers some, some suggestions for uh, how uh, an agency that might be contemplating this kind of equipment for this purpose could deal with those high equipment costs. It's a lot of the solutions that we've talked about here. I mean, we, the basically fire and police departments teaming up together to make a, a combined service or um, getting grants from private organizations or using multiple agencies. I mean, the audience that this article was written for was not really towards us drone audience, but basically to fire, police, and rescue. So um, we've heard a lot of those solutions before, but, I mean, it is going out to an audience that probably is just coming up to speed on that kind of integration between fire and police or fire and EMS. So, Max, way, 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 way back in the day... I learned about drones because they were little airplanes that had big orange markings on it that we shot down. Right. And that was what I grew up learning about drones. Well, the, the proper term is 
FSAT or full scale aerial target. And the latest version happens to be the QF-16, which replaced the QF-4 Phantom, much to the chagrin of a lot of people. It was sad seeing the Phantoms disappear, but now we're shooting up F-16s. And this was an article from Tyndall Air Force Base um, about the QF-16 and a little of the technology involved in having this fourth-generation fighter be a target. These uh, QF-16s are assigned to the 82nd Aerial Targets Squadron, ATRS, um, and they're used for training purposes, where up to uh, four of these QF-16s can be remotely controlled by a single pilot, and unlike a drone that just kind of flies on its own, I guess these QF-16s can actually perform the types of maneuvers or simulate the maneuvers that an adversary fighter might undertake. So it uh, is, is a great way to train fighter pilots. And in this case, I mean, you're trying to use a aircraft to practice either test missiles or um, live combat aerial combat and a normal drone used for a, a target tends not to fly like an airplane tends to be a very f level fast in this case the f-16 presents a real size target and does real maneuvering to avoid the missile or guns or whatever it's being used to be attacked so lieutenant paul Ein Reinhofer, Ein Reinhofer, yeah, Ein Reinhofer of the 82nd ATRS, Director of Operations, says, quote, the QF-16 brings the ability to provide full-scale, unarmed, unmanned, threat-representative aerial target for live missile testing. It supports the 82nd ATAR's mission, which is to provide safe, effective, and efficient aerial target support for the Department of Defense and foreign material support weapons tests and evaluation programs. And the QF-16s are flown usually over the Gulf of Mexico. That's where the Air Force does their operations with the drones. They do also do them over the test ranges in New Mexico. And occasionally they will fly them out of Point Magoo in California for the Navy. So, David, uh, I think um, many people, when first hearing that we use F-16s for target practice, are just kind of amazed and think, well, we shoot up our own F-16s? Where do these come from, David, and what turns a, an F-16 into a QF-16? They're old. <laughs> They're, they are older aircraft that are no longer in service with the United States Air Force. And where do we do? We send them off to the boneyard. And then the systems are produced by the 309th Aerospace Squadron out and they re restore the aircraft, refit it with the engines, and then it is flown to a contractor who puts in the avionics to make the aircraft capable of flying unmanned. And at that point, it's used as a target until it reaches its end of its life and then it becomes a real target where it's it's used to be destroyed um and we've done this with all of the century series fighters with the exception of the f1 the 101 so the f100 the f102 the f104 the f106 
Um, the F-100s used to have large rockets on the on their end of their wings so that the heat-seeking missiles would take out the rocket and, not, and spare the aircraft. And um, we've gone moved all the way up through the F-4 Phantom series of both the Navy Phantoms and the Air Force Phantoms. And now we're on to the F-16, which emulates a fourth-generation fighter threat, which as a general rule, is the majority of what the Air Forces and around the world fly. So, David, does that mean that the seabed in the Gulf of Mexico is littered with F-16s? And F-100s oh. and F-104s and F-105s. We've been using old fighter aircraft as, as drones since the 40s, um, Interestingly enough, one of the most famous drones that most people look at and don't realize was a drone is the F-6F Hellcat at the Smithsonian Institution that's hanging from the ceiling by the Enola Gay. Um, it's painted in its wartime colors of blue, blue, and white. However, after the war, it actually flew sampling missions unmanned as a F-6F 3K drone over the Bikini Atoll. No when they had had the nuclear tests. So we've been flying around aircraft as drones for a very long time. So this is, while it's been democratized and you can go buy your own drone now, but the military's been flying drones for years. Well, speaking of things in the water, David. Really? Did that segue have a porpoise? <laughs> Porpoises. Uh, this was from koreantimes.co. The Korean National Park Service released footage of four endangered finless porpoises mating in the sea. I didn't know there were finless porpoises. We learn so much from doing this show. Yeah, I didn't either. I had to look it up. It turns out there's eight different porpoise species. At first, I'm thinking a finless porpoise, isn't that like a, a big eel? I mean, how does it move, <laughs> how does it move around? But actually... In my ignorance, they do have the flippers. They just don't have the fin on their backs. I think that's the only, the only difference. Yes. But apparently, they're um, highly endangered and are rarely seen. I guess they don't like people that much. Um, but they um, they found them in the sea there, and the uh, the video was uh, was shot using a they call it a heli kite, which is an unmanned aerial camera. Sort of like a drone, um, but they use that to observe marine animals. And it's kind of cool. Uh, they have a picture of the helikite, which sort of looks like a helistat, a, a a blimp sort of kind of shaped thing. That, but it, again, it's a remotely operated vehicle to observe these porpoises, um, and they're kind of cute. I mean. Dolphins and porpoises are always cute, but these are these are cute, and like Max says, they're like uh, podcast hosts. They don't really like people, and they hide away from the general public. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear, but we're not mating, and these uh, these porpoises were, which I guess the uh, they they learned a lot, or they we're able to collect a lot of information that's helpful to uh, researchers, those who are trying to study these, these animals. Um, but uh, yeah, they are cute, David, you're right. So let's talk about drone repellent. And this is from 
usnavalinstitute.org. Drake, and we're not talking about a duck, is Drake is a drone repellent system. Yeah, everything's an acronym, you know? So Drake is Drone Restricted Access Using Known Electromagnetic Warfare. That's how you get to Drake. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You could quack that again. Mm -hmm. And where did this come from? Northrop Grumman. Um, and it's used on Humvees during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So this is a technology that has been used in surface war, I mean, in ground warfare, and now is being used for surface warfare by the Navy. Now, I kind of got the impression from reading this, David, and you can tell me if, if I'm correct, but I kind of got the impression that this is kind of more dedicated towards, well, I'll call them nuisance drones, as opposed to other military drones. I mean, they talk a lot about people who might be curious or who have a drone and, and they see a naval ship and they think, well, I can fly it over the ship or near the ship. So it's a jamming system. It doesn't destroy the drone. Uh, it just jams the communications between the drone and the operator. Yeah, well, I, I think, I think it, it's basically geared towards stupid people and or people who would endanger a ship with a remotely piloted vehicle, but of the consumer grade. Mm. I mean, we have we have seen that in conflicts in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan um, and in Yemen, commercial grade drones have been used to provide attacks or surveillance where they're not talking about weapons grade drones like Predators or Reapers or any of the other um Israeli ones or Chinese ones, these are the ones that are off the shelf that might still provide provide a threat to either a ship at sea or a ground threat, which it was previously used. And it's kind of an interesting device. Um, it can use either batteries, it can be battery powered, or it can take ship's power. And it's apparently small enough to fit into a backpack so that if you're operating this, uh, you can move around the ship to, you know, wherever you need to be positioned to use it. And as a, as a jamming device, it has frequencies pre-programmed into it, different frequencies that are commonly used by drones. So it can repel, I guess, a wide variety of drones. It has the, you know, the correct, it knows the correct frequencies in order to do that. And it can't be used without specific authority in the continental U.S. I mean, it's primarily used overseas, but it's an interesting technology. And it's, it's interesting how the Army or the ground-based threat has now become a sea-based threat or a possible sea-based threat and how technology is transferring from the Army to the Navy. Um, and it isn't a football game. <sighs> Moving on. <laughs> I, knew, I knew there was going to be something there. This is from Drone DJ. AT&T Cow Drones, restoring phone service, cut by Ida's extreme weather. Max, you and I really got hit by Ida. Luckily, not as bad as other people, but evidently um, cows are saving the day. And these aren't cattle, obviously. These are, are drones cell-on-wings drones. Previously, cow was, well, I say previously, uh, initially, cow referred to 
cell on wheels and referred to a mobile station that could be driven to areas that, um, like a hurricane or something, some kind of natural disaster has taken out the communications system. Well, here the, the cow, the W, is cell on wings, and these drones provide LTE coverage over a 40-mile range, which is pretty impressive. You don't get that out of cell towers, and that's because these are tethered, and they hover at 300 feet. So because they're so uh, high, up in the, high up in the sky, um, they have that greater coverage than a cell tower would, and also greater coverage than a cell on wheels would have as well. And we've talked about the cow technology in the past. I mean, they were used in Puerto Rico in 2017. I'm just waiting for them, Max. You know, the biggest cell crisis ever happens to be the last week in July in Wisconsin. You think they could throw one of these up when we go to EAA at Oshkosh? That would be very helpful. I mean, but, quite helpful. But so they're, they're tethered. They're not free-floating. So the tethers have a fiber optic cable transmitting data to ground stations to a router, and then the data goes up to a satellite, which redirects it to AT&T's network. And the tether, of course, provides power to the drone to keep it airborne. We have a video that we'll put in the show notes, which is um, appropriately titled When Cows Fly, but it'll give you an idea for the uh, the size of this. It's a, it's a pretty decent-sized unit. I mean, the drone is a you know, a good-sized drone, but the, the ground station is uh, is pretty large. It incorporates a lot of solar panels for power because that was the first thing I was wondering when looking at this. And let's say if the cellular system is down and you've got this um, um, this cow to uh, compensate for that, where does the power come from? Well, they have a lot of solar panels. And in the video, you can see that this is uh, all housed in a, a trailer that's pulled by a pickup truck. So it, it's pretty good, pretty good sized, but it's something that can be deployed quickly uh, when it needs to be. In a way, Max, it's kind of rewarding. We were talking about semi-permanent satellites. And back when we started doing this show, this kind of technology was a dream to be able to deploy something as a UAS to facilitate communication in disasters. And here we are, 2021, um, and they're doing the implementation now and very cost-effectively and very effectively. So yeah, good day, TNT. So let's go around the globe to India and new regulations. And I thought this was kind of interesting because now you can take your nano drones on flights, domestic flights in India. Well, maybe soon, because what they've done is is they've relaxed a lot of the restrictions that they had had on drones. But one issue that, that remains is that technically right now you cannot take your drone on, on a domestic flight, either checked or carry-on. And so as they point out in the article, this is from the Economic Times, uh, the India Times, uh, as they point out that if you are... Um, on holiday, going on vacation with your family, you want to take your drone with you right now. You you, you can't, but they they hope to uh, correct that soon. 
But some of the, the rules that have been relaxed is now the remote pilot license is not required for nano and micro drones as long as you're using them for non-commercial or personal use. And also model aircraft and nano drones do not require a, uh, a certificate. Um, so, so that's very helpful in India. But uh, the government is also working on an airspace map that's going to be uh, pretty useful. Yeah, it's going to be color-coordinated. So, and where the drones can be operated or not operated. So, of course, let's start off with red, like airports where drones will be prohibited. Um, inner yellow zones will require air traffic control clearance. Outer yellow zones will require permission up to 200 feet between will 8 not, and 12. Will not require permission. Will not require permission up to 200 feet between 8 and 12 kilometers from the airport perimeter. And lastly, but green zones will not require permission for drones to fly up to 400 feet. So to quote airport, the green zone is for loading and unloading of passengers and flying your drones. So this is good news for uh, drone pilots in India, which we mentioned it has been pretty restrictive up to this point. Um, so that's some, some good progress. And I think given all that progress, they'll address the, the issue about taking them on domestic flights pretty quickly, hopefully. And so I guess, Max, we should wrap this one up and, and stow it in the... Um Overhead bin. I know you hate overhead bins. I do. Um, so thanks for listening to the UAV Digest. This has been episode 382. So you can find us at the UAVdigest.com. Or if you want to go straight to the show notes, just visit the UAVdigest.com slash 382. And of course, you can find us scouring the globe on social media. Um, Max and I are on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. And, of course, we want you to join our Slack listener team. Every week we get two or three new people joining in the conversation on our Slack listener team. And you do that by sending us an email to feedback at the UAVdigest.com, as well as send us some links and some videos. We haven't had anybody send some good videos lately. So send us some videos. Or if there's a story you want Max and I to comment on, send it to, again, Feedback at the UAVdigest.com. So until next week, this is David. And this is Max. Thanks for listening.